week, Swinging Stocks acknowledges the traditional custodians of Australia's lands, skies and waterways and pays respects to elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is brought to you by SelfWealth and operates under AFSL number 421789 as general advice only. Because we can't take into account your personal objectives or financial situation, you should seek independent professional financial advice before making any investment decision. For more information and our financial disclosure statement, check the show notes. It's such an important question for an Australian investor. You have to do the hard yards. Money isn't made easily. How do you destroy demand? We will end up in a heavy recession. Bring inflation back under control. Usually money drops out of helicopters to people. Wars end, markets get better, recessions improve. If I just persist, I will make money. The future's bright. In 1818, Magellan was the first person to circumnavigate the globe, and it is this pioneering global focus that has possessed the eponymous Australian Investment Fund since its start in 2006. With a focus on global equities and infrastructure investments, the fund has become a bit of a behemoth in Australian investing circles. And if you haven't heard of Magellan Financial Group, well, you might very well be invested in it, whether through your superannuation or if you happen to own an ASX 200 or 300 listed stock like Faz or A200. Joining us today is Nikki Thomas, who is a bit of an investing legend, one of the first analysts the investing duo of Hamish Douglas and Chris McKay hired when they founded the firm in 2006. Nikki Thomas is global portfolio manager at Magellan and honestly, I am so delighted to have you join us on Big Swinging Stocks. Welcome to the show, Nikki. Thank you, Alex. You're very kind. I saw you laughing when I said bit of an investing legend, but that's okay. We'll get into it. Well, I'll, I'll prove it to you. <laughs> um, as always, when we have guests on the show, we love to find out what their first investing memory was. I do. Um, and... I'm probably not the first person to mention a grandparent when asked this question, but uh, I was a country kid at boarding school. My grandmother used to look after me a lot and we'd go shopping together and I recall standing in the lolly aisle and she would say to me, you can't choose those ones, you have to choose those ones because they're by Sweet Acres and I own shares in Sweet Acres. So way back then <laughs> she uh, she started talking about shares and um, her investments and, and they influenced the way she spent money. And I must say Magellan took on a similar, uh, headspace. When we first started, we used to have, uh, um, you know, treats in the office occasionally. And, uh, it was always important that those treats came from companies that were invested in the, the global strategy. So. That's an that incredible story. <laughs> also love that your grandma, I mean, we talk about women entering, you know, increasingly entering the investing space. What a pioneer your grandmother was to be investing way back when. That's awesome. Yeah, I think uh, people who live in the country uh, are very aware of the risks that come with agriculture. And so uh, my family always had a history of diversifying mm. their exposures. Uh, and that meant that they were uh, for decades uh my family have always been invested in shares and, and thoughtful about investing in shares. What an interesting perspective. I think with farming, you would just naturally have a higher risk tolerance than most or perhaps be you know naturally exposed to the volatility that a lot of us have to learn to tolerate in the stock market. Well, I love that story. And I think investing itself, you know, whether it's in our personal lives or otherwise, can have a huge impact on who we become. And I'd love to know as well, how did that really set 
a bit of a foundation for you that led you into a career in finance? I don't, I don't know if it was really that. It, it probably opened my eyes to the existence of this uh, space. But I, I'm, you know, when I left school, uh, the thing that fascinated me, having come from the country, was looking across uh, from the boarding house to the city and wondering what people did in all these tall buildings and seeing the lights gone and off and wondering what went on inside. It seemed a strange thing to do with your day. Probably still is a strange thing to do with your day. Uh, so I, I wanted to understand what companies were about and ultimately that led me to a desire to understand how to value companies and um, ultimately that led me uh, to the path that I ended up on, which was stockbroking first and then funds management uh, and thinking about um, the opportunity that came from understanding how to value companies meant you knew when to buy things and and thus make money through investing. Well, you are now one of those people in those tall buildings turning the lights on and off (laughs) very early in the morning, I hear. But it's a really interesting question around valuation. So a lot of companies are valued based on PE, so price to earnings. And for new investors, that can be sort of a complicated concept to get your head around, you know, lots of involvement of maths. But inflation is obviously on everyone's minds and that is cutting into profits and especially companies that are heavily leveraged on debt, they seem to have had their valuations significantly lowered and therefore that's had an impact on their share price. But I'm really curious for Magellan's view and yours as well personally, do you think that are we through it or is there more losses yet to come? I wish I had the answer to that, Alex. (laughs) Uh, I wouldn't still be working if I did. Uh, I guess it depends on your time frame. (laughs) You know, in the very short term, it's very hard to know if markets will go up or down. Um, But but what you can do is understand what is uh, appreciated by the market in the price that you would pay, so the stock price, and do the work to understand what fundamental value of a business is. And if you take a fundamental investing perspective, not a speculation perspective, and speculating is just trying to pick where the share prices go up and down, but actually saying, I believe this company is worth $100 and today it's trading at $50. If I just persist, I will make money. Even if 50 becomes 45 or 40, if I'm right, the $100 will play out and I'll be well invested. So that's a really important criteria. I think for people who want to invest, to not get caught speculating and not thinking that watching share prices is giving you any information whatsoever, it's not. You have to do the hard yards. Mm-hmm. This is hard work uh, and you have to be prepared to do the hard yards. Money isn't made easily, quickly, and, and it shouldn't be for free. So, um learn how to value companies and that will set you up and set you on the right path to make money investing. Uh, And so that would be what I would encourage people to do if they want to be, uh, you know, if they're fascinated by markets and find this whole world interesting. Mm. Well, the high valuation of companies is a really interesting topic because I think the way that companies are structured, especially tech companies in the last sort of 20 years, has has fundamentally changed. So for a lot of investors, they're only used to companies like Uber that exist, are heavily debt leveraged. And I'm really interested to know, again, this is simply a forecast because can't 
predict the future. But I am curious to know whether the the rise of inflation rates for these companies just generally around the world and the cost of, you know, servicing their supply chains as well will mean that some of these larger companies that are consistently and heavily debt leveraged will actually just cease to exist. It's a complex question. Um, so let me try and break down, I guess, the issues you're getting at. And, and you're right, high leverage in a rising interest rate environment it is uh, something to avoid. Uh, it's not It's not an area uh, that Magellan would go. So we don't look at businesses that don't generate any cash flow and have lots of debt. They're just they're very difficult businesses to make money out of long term. So I, I completely concur. Understanding the leverage in a business is really important, but even more important when interest rates are rising. Um, I, I think the inflation conundrum right now that's that's been impacting markets is is really so we if we just go through a little bit of the history, COVID uh, was an extraordinary event, a pandemic hitting the world, and the reaction of governments and central banks was. Uh, to prop us up, to get us through that. And so they reduced interest rates aggressively and they stimulated through fiscal stimulus, governments giving us money, literally money drops out of helicopters to people. That created an extraordinary rally in markets because when you do that, uh, it fuels asset prices. People have all this money and they just go and find a way to invest it. So asset prices, housing, stock market uh, went up very, very fast. Uh, and we had an incredible blowout year through 2021 when markets were up 30%. Mm. And then governments realised as we moved through the pandemic and out the other side, they probably had spent a little bit too much money and central banks had probably taken interest rates a little bit too low. And the, and the implications of that has been that you've had excess demand versus supply and the lockdowns created a, an even bigger issue around supply because of supply chain constraints and, and labour market constraints. And so that uh, disequilibrium between demand and supply has created inflation and, and very rapid inflation. How do you bring inflation back under control? The only thing central banks have at their, in their toolkit is interest rates really to, to break demand. They can't fix the supply side. That will have to fix itself. But if they can bring demand back down, they'll hopefully get closer to equilibrium. And how do you destroy demand? Well, you raise prices. You stop people spending aggressively. Uh, and so interest rates have been pushed up aggressively um, and ultimately demand destruction is underway. So we're seeing that play out. Uh, so the so where we are in in markets today is the markets trying to figure out the 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 trajectory of growth versus the tra- trajectory of inflation. If we can bring inflation down quickly enough, growth won't be destroyed. If we can't, mm-hmm. then central banks will keep raising rates, and it will destroy growth. We will end up in a heavy recession. So that's the that's the point at which we find ourselves. And so for me as an investor, the pieces that we need to be thoughtful about are how do we make money when there's inflation? What companies are protected from inflation? Uh, And so that's when you look at businesses like uh, Visa and a MasterCard who clip the ticket on nominal dollars. So their profits are leveraged to inflation. That's a positive. So they're businesses that we like at the moment in our portfolio because we like that inflation can work for us. Uh, but exactly to your point, you don't want to be in, in businesses that don't have pricing power, that are seeing their cost structures blow up, 
and they can't pass that on, so their margins are getting squeezed. So you've seen a little bit of that in retail uh, where businesses have had huge fuel cost increases, supply chain issues, but they haven't been able to pass it on to consumers and so their profits have get, I've got hurt. No, but a really, a really great question for investors right now at this moment when perhaps your portfolio is heavily in the red or slightly less in the red than it was maybe a month ago, but uh, to think about, you know, how well protected are you from various different types of market events? Yes, we were all probably swimming in green when tech was doing well, but we're investing for the long term and you need to start thinking about recessions happen between every seven to 10 years. They're going to happen multiple times in our life probably. And it's helpful for new investors to think about what that portfolio structure looks like if you're investing for the next 40 years. And I want to talk a little bit more about, you know, new investors and how they might be sort of watching the news because it can be quite a doomsday scenario. But I want to talk about, you know, you've come back to the company really recently as well. And, you know, you have previously been at Magellan. What's in the future for Magellan? What's the outlook for 2023 and moving forward? Great question. Uh, so uh, my view is Magellan has a very bright future. Uh, and the reason why I believe that is that uh, I believe markets go up over time and Magellan obviously uh, is leveraged to the performance of markets over time. So this business should do well as as markets improve and, and they will improve. Uh, wars end, markets get better, recessions improve. So whatever happens, you know, markets will go up over time. Th- this has a extraordinary team of human assets. You know, we're not we're not capital intensive, but we are human asset intensive as a business. And uh, this company did an amazing job over the last 15 years of always recruiting really talented people in the places uh, that we need people. So running our operations team, running our client service distribution team, and of course, then the investing slave as well. So there's sort of three legs to the stool at Magellan. Each of those have uh, a wonderful team culture and an extraordinary depth of talent in the business. Uh, that sets you up well for success. And so it, mm. it, it has been a, a tricky last 12, 18 months, but it is uh, an extraordinarily uh, capable business with, I think, a very bright future. And we now have a new CEO in David George who comes with a very clear uh, lens around the, the value that a business like Magellan can bring to the market. Uh, and so I think... Um, the future's bright. That's very exciting. And what a good time for you to come back into the fold. Let's talk about Magellan a little bit. For those who may not be as familiar, even if they might be indirectly invested, Magellan's global following the the whole spirit of circumnavigation that you are named after. But I was really, really curious to get under the hood of the Magellan Global Fund. So the fund has, from my understanding, a performance target of 9%. And I was staggered that that has actually been achieved since inception. So I want to talk about what makes the fund a star performer and what is it about the makeup of the fund that has made it achieve a pretty substantial, consistent return since it was started. Uh, thanks, Alex. Um, so I guess there, there is a s- certain characteristics to the way Magellan invests globally that are quite different to what most people in the market are trying to do, and that has uh, has been important in 
then defining that history that you've talked about in terms of excess returns over mm-hmm. time. Uh, so we think very much about absolute returns. Believe it or not, most people in the market don't. Most people are, are thinking about relative to an index return. And then you have to know what the index is going to do, which is quite challenging. So as a, mm. as a mum and dad investor, as, as you, you know, your uh, clients, your people who would be listening, that what they're trying to do is create wealth for themselves. They're trying to deliver an absolute return. That's what we're trying to do. So we are trying to find, firstly, really high quality, competitively advantaged businesses that stand the test of time, that win most of the time in their markets. Uh, and then we just try to make sure we're buying those at the right price. Sometimes those businesses are overpriced. Uh, and so, you know, you, you won't invest in them at that point. Um, but if you buy the right ones at the right price and you set a portfolio up, and it's important to think about risk characteristics across a portfolio, not just, uh, you know, running around finding a few good stock picks, uh, then you manage for risk and return. And that's our, that's our mindset. So, we're very thoughtful about risk. We're very thoughtful about uh, protecting capital uh, at when adverse events happen. Uh, you know, Russia invading Ukraine is a is a black swan event. Mm. People didn't see it coming, but when it happens, you want a portfolio that is resilient when those things impact asset prices. And so that's the headspace that sits behind uh, how Magellan invests. It's a concentrated portfolio. It's typically no more than 30 stocks uh, and it's leaning forward on very high quality. So to your point, you know, not things that are over leveraged, not things uh, that that have no cash flows. Uh, you know, we're not speculating on something that might be successful in 20 years time and crossing our fingers that we could be right. We're investing in those wonderful businesses that we know are going to be successful. Uh, and can leverage incredible competitive positions to deliver outsized returns for our investors. I mean, it seems pretty logical to invest in quality companies that, you know, you buy at a good price. I mean, it's, it's, it's exactly how you would structure your own portfolio, but it is incredibly difficult to do. And I'm curious to know, is the fund likely to achieve its performance target this year, given been an unprecedented and a very difficult year for markets? So our our target 9% per annum after fees is a long-term through the cycle uh, expectation. So when you get these big cyclical downturns or these big market corrections, it's very hard for any fund manager who's investing into a market uh, to live on that sort of objective on a, on a shorter term time frame through that. So I wouldn't set you up with an expectation that uh, 2022 is going to see pretty much anyone in the market deliver a 9% per annum return. Uh, mm-hmm. But but we certainly uh, are setting ourselves up to deliver on that objective if I was to take a three or four year view from today. So if I look at our portfolio today, my expectation of the compound return we can achieve from the companies we're invested in today uh, over that time frame, then I would say to you, yes, I, I feel uh, like we are we are absolutely on track to deliver on that objective. And in fact, uh, I think we can do better than that. I'm also curious, you know, Magellan prides itself on being a global fund. It's, it, there's a very global mindset. I mean, it, it permeates all of your marketing throughout uh, your communications. But I'm curious to know, you know, we talk a lot about 
short-term trends, like with batteries, maybe a shorter-term trend. ESG, I think everyone's convinced, is now just a trend to stay and perhaps will just become part of the metrics we use to evaluate companies moving forward. But what, in Magellan's opinion, makes a theme global? When does it get on Magellan's radar? It's an interesting question. I, I for me, I look. I approach the world with a global lens, so I don't. I don't uh, try to differentiate. What happens with the research we do and the and the deep analysis that goes on inside Magellan is um, we dig in to understand companies. As we do that, and we're trying to uh, draw a line as to where the future lies for this business, what tends to happen is those themes, as you talk about, uh, come to life. Uh, we see, so so we don't go looking for them; they find us. Uh, and so you're right. Sustainability is is oh. is part and parcel of living today. We have to be thinking about this. Uh, I think mm. it's it, critically important for investors to be thoughtful about sustainability and understanding where we're headed on that path. Uh, and so uh, the opportunities that present from that uh, become apparent as you do your work. What a beautiful way of saying the data leads you. It's a very, you know, scientific approach to investing when a lot of the time it can be so influenced by emotion. But I think that's the sort of value of professionals that I see is that I love the idea that it's the data will take you to a particular theme and then the opportunity will present itself. Speaking of individual investors. I, I love, you know, you have a motto about Magellan benefits from thieves, themes driving the world. But I know that when I was starting to invest, there was so much media and even also like investing books for beginners focused on Australia. And it was like, invest in Australia, invest in an index, Franking credits are amazing and Australia is the only market you need to basically be in. And I want to know from a fund that is, you know, predominantly global, all global actually, is home country bias real? And, you know, should retail investors really be thinking of franking credits as the be all and end all? It's such an important question for an Australian investor, Alex. So thank you for asking it. I, uh, look, home country bias is simply what it is. We, we as humans will gravitate to things that we feel like we have more knowledge in and we should do that. So uh, if you're living in Australia, you are going to understand Australian house prices better than you're going to understand what a house price is going to do in Turkey. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you're probably going to, if you if you want to invest in a house, you're probably going to do it in Australia. Um, there's also tax advantages uh, for investing in your home market sometimes, and franking credits is exactly one of those, and it shouldn't be discounted. It's a real benefit that comes to Australian investors to invest in Australia. We have Airly, our Australian share fund inside Magellan, and they are investing purely in the Australian market and extracting the opportunities that exist in our home market for their investors. So um, I, I think for an Australian, you should have – some investments in Australia, but I also think you should be prepared to put some of your investments globally. It gives you diversification and it'll give you opportunities that you simply won't get by just investing in Australia. So, you know, I, I, I don't think you should um, be, uh, be hard on yourself if you see Australia as somewhere where you feel 
a little bit more confident about understanding what the issues will be and whether mm. you should buy a bank or buy mm. BHP. You know, you're probably in a good place to build knowledge around that living here and um, absolutely franking credits are valuable. So take advantage of it. So yes to Australia, yes. but also yes. diversify. <laughs> it's perhaps the, the message. I love that. We talked a little bit earlier in the episode around sustainability and ESG, and I'm perhaps on a bit of a personal crusade about these questions. Me so too, so it's me, cool. <laughs> uh, okay, okay, good. <laughs> because, look, I'm a lawyer, and for me, governance is one of the most important things. I think people ignore it and it's overlooked as part of discussions around sustainability and ESG generally. People just go ES and they forget that there's a third letter in the acronym. And, you know, Tesla's a really good example. People were furious that it had been kicked off the ESG NASDAQ index, not understanding really the context that the G was quite a significant component of that decision. But let's talk more broadly. What companies do you think are doing the G really well and what country, uh, companies or even industries are not? I just want to tell the viewers <laughs> that Nikki is looking very pensive, perhaps because she realised this is going to be a hot it's gossip. It's a hard <laughs> for question for me because episode. we take uh, a very hard line around governance. And so when we screen for quality, if, country, if companies don't, meet our criteria around governance, they simply don't become investable for us. And so I look at our portfolio and I, I kind of go, I'm differentiating between the best in the world around governance. Uh, that would be unfair to say this one's better or this one's worse. Um, anything that isn't good enough, I'm not looking at. So earlier in the episode, you mentioned the difference between speculation and investment. And I was reading a article your CIO wrote in 2019 that said Magellan is not in the business of speculation. We are in the business of investment, which I feel like is a great tagline for the 2022 meme stock counterculture, <laughs> which is nice. But a uh, controversial question. Nikki Thomas, what are your thoughts on Bitcoin? <laughs> I don't have a lot because I would not go near it personally. I... I, I... I don't believe there's a fundamental value <laughs> lying behind it. I, I think there's value in blockchain and I do think mm -hmm. cryptocurrencies will or, or digital mm -hmm. currencies will uh, become an increasingly important part of our world. So I'm not negative on the developments around the digitalization of currency and some of the technology that supports those things. Uh, but when you get into how do you value a Bitcoin, uh, I believe you can do a fundamental value. It usually comes up with a value worth significantly differently from where it trades. Uh, and for me, it's just not part of the world I would invest in with comfort. I, I think it's high risk. And look, if you've mm. got to, to me, you know, speculating for some people is a bit like going to the casino and, and it creates a level of enjoyment. So. If that's your thing, if you want to have some fun, allocate yourself that risk budget, just as you would if you went to the casino, and say, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna put a thousand dollars if you've got that available to you. I'm gonna put a hundred dollars in my speculative bucket and I'm I'm gonna play. And if I lose it all, I'm not gonna be upset because I'm speculating. 
but maybe yeah. I'll double it and that'll be fun. So, yeah. you know, if it's kind of a fun thing, that's okay. If it's maybe actually it that you're trying to create wealth, mm. don't go to speculative assets. So it's my understanding you used to be a retail analyst back in the day. So if you were sitting back in the chair and you were, you know, maybe running a report for some retail investors, what would you say to those investors about the kinds of things to look for in an emerging, say, Starbucks or Apple of the world? So when you're thinking about that uh, retail space, that uh, I guess I'd call it a consumer space, something that mums and dads will, will want to go, uh, there's a few things that I would seek. One is uh, something that's differentiated, something that genuinely has a proposition that wants, that makes a consumer want to keep coming back. Uh, in in the case of Starbucks, you know, it, it sells coffee. It's a habitual, uh, somewhat addictive product. So that's a pretty good thing to have in your toolkit because people want to keep coming back to Starbucks for that Such a good morning one. cup of coffee on their way to work. Uh, so so that consumer proposition is it really. Uh, something that people love. Secondly, you know, what makes businesses grow over time in this space is typically having an ability to take their uh, offering and roll it out, whether it's a global rollout or a local rollout. Uh, If you can see a business that has built a level of scale that's profitable, but still has a huge runway to take that to the market uh, and and make their business a lot bigger by adding stores uh, uh, and generate good economic returns on those stores, uh, then then that will give you a very nice growth profile looking for. So a global rollout story is something that's a, a really valuable thing to find. Uh, and then the other piece would be I would make sure I understood the economic model. And what I mean by that is businesses make money differently depending on how they structure. Mm. So uh, I'll give you an example. McDonald's and Yum Brands, the KFC uh, franchise company, they actually run a franchised operation. So uh, McDonald's make money largely by charging franchise fees and rent to their franchise operators. They don't run the they don't run many restaurants. Uh, so their economic model is very much about clipping the ticket on sales. It's not trying to employ the staff and manage the commodity costs and buy the paper and the and the and you know make the burgers that so that's actually a very capital light model and that's a very nice place mm-hmm. to be invested um other restaurant companies mm-hmm. actually run the whole operation they have to employ all the staff they have to buy the commodities uh, so they have a lot more operating leverage in the business and so you have to be and more capital tied up so you have to be more careful around the value creation that's in a business mm. like that because it is um, more volatile. But it's a good reminder that businesses don't always make money the way we think they do. Grocery stores have different prices for different shelves and McDonald's is essentially a landlord with an IP side hustle, basically. Final question of the hour. If you could use a crystal ball, what would you say looking back 2022's big investing newspaper headline would be? I've got two fun ones for you. Yeah? (laughs) One, so the macro one, inflation genie being pummeled back into its bottle. Oh. that's what the Fed's trying to do. It's a fantastic (laughs) headline too. And what's your second one? My second one is delighted clients as Magellan gets its mojo back. (laughs) (laughs) 
I love that. <sighs> and uh, hopefully both of those can be crystallised into reality because what a great year that would be after all this uncertainty. Nikki Thomas, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for coming on to Big Swinging Stocks. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. I've learned a lot and thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Alex. You've been very patient with my long answers. So it's been lovely to talk They've to you. They've been so enlightening. Thank you. Thank you. 